Good morning. Today's reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Hi, everyone. The title of this morning's service uh, sermon is 24-7 Confident Faith. So that gives you an idea where we're going. And um, the, to summarize the lesson, really, it's the idea that becoming a Christian is a bit less like joining a table tennis club, where you have to turn up once a week, but apart from that, it doesn't really affect you. And much more like um, maybe joining the armed forces. We've had someone from church who's gone and joined the army recently. And when you join that kind of uh, job, you're signing up to a lifestyle, you're signing up to a set of values, you're signing up uh, to an identity, really. But it's worth it because you're signing up to a cause, you're signing up to camaraderie, and uh, it's an honor. So that's what the Christian life is like. It's all of those things. And Adrian, if we could have the reading back on on the screen here, please. The key line really is this first one, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I just want to ask two questions of that sentence this morning. First of all, when? When should we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Bit of a mouthful. When and how? So let's think about when, first of all. And uh, if I've called this sermon 24-7 Confident Faith, I think you've probably already got the answer to that. 24-7, all the time. But I want to flag up a couple of things in the reading that are a bit more specific about when we should conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the first one is this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ... When your church leaders can't see you. It's probably a bit of a creepy thought to think that we might be able to see you all the time, but we can't, and that's a good thing. But when we're not there, that's a time to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I get that from the words, whatever happens. Now, because we've just read this uh, text and not the whole letter, uh, we might think that whatever happens just encompasses pretty much everything, You know, whether there's an earthquake or your football team win or you run out of petrol or you get a new job, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But if you read the whole letter, then you get what comes before and you get what comes straight afterwards. And it seems as though Paul is being a bit more specific here. Just before, Paul has been talking about whether he lives or dies. George actually quoted a bit of this right at the beginning of the service. Paul said, Whether I I live or die, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And so he's, he's got no qualms about disappearing from this earth, because that will be a good thing for him. But he says, for me to remain and be with you is better for you, because I can teach you. So whether I come or I go or wherever I am, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then, of course, he carries on. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, in other words, whether I'm there or not, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't know if any of you have this experience, but when I'm using the computer and I need to do something on the computer that I know will take a long time to load, maybe I'm processing a video or I'm uploading a lot of files to the cloud or something like that, I know that if I click go and then take my eye off that laptop for a second, it will crash and I'll come back to it and it will say, sorry, I know you've just left it for three hours to do something, but it hasn't been able to do it. You have to start again. But just recently, I had the satisfying experience where I was loading 23 gigabytes of photos onto OneDrive. That's a lot, if you don't know. 23 gigabytes. And so I thought, well, I can't just wait for hours while it does this. I'll leave it overnight. And you know, I came back the following morning, and it had done what I asked it to do. That's a first for me. What a satisfying experience. And Paul wants the church in Philippi to be just like that. He can leave them, having pressed go, as it were, and when he comes back, he finds that they're still going strong. Whatever happens, including when your church leaders, teachers, whoever it might be, are absent. So let's uh, all make an effort to be better Christians when we're away from church than we are when we're in it, maybe. The second answer to the question, when? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ when other voices tell you not to. Now I'm getting this from the words, conduct yourselves, there at the top. The word in the original Greek of the New Testament can be translated conduct yourselves. It can be translated live your life. But the original word has political overtones that are quite difficult to get across in English. Probably the best we can do is something like have your uh, citizenship. It's all to do with citizenship. Uh, So that's not very clear. Let me uh, explain it in terms of the background of the people Paul is writing to. This is the letter to the Philippians. The Philippians are the people who live in a town called Philippi, which was a Roman colony. And the Philippians were very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. They weren't in Rome, obviously, they weren't in Italy, but they were Roman citizens. And that would affect every area of their lives. They would work like Roman citizens, they would relax like Roman citizens. They would have the confidence that being a Roman citizen brought, and they would celebrate the whole Roman way of life. And that was their whole identity, and Paul uses this to make a point about their Christian identity. A bit later in the letter, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And where that clashes with being a citizen of somewhere else, whether that's Roman or British or whatever it might be, It's your identity as a Christian that comes first. Now, if this is sounding familiar to some of you, it's because George was making exactly this point a few weeks ago in Sunday at 6. He did an excellent talk on politics, Christian views and tenets. And I know that a few few people who went along were a bit nervous about it because you thought, well, not really that interested in politics. 
But George did a great job of taking us to the Bible and showing us how our first identity is as citizens of heaven. Everything else comes from that. So that's online if you haven't seen it yet, and I recommend checking that out. Paul says to the Philippians, you're proud of being Roman citizens, but first and foremost, you are citizens of heaven. So listen to what happens in the book of Acts when Paul visits Philippi and we get a clash of two citizenships, heaven and Roman. This is Acts 16, verse 20. Paul had been living out his Christian life and uh, caused some trouble, so the crowd brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So here, when Paul says, conduct yourselves, have your citizenship, he's gently pushing the Philippians to consider this question. Which citizenship, which identity matters more to you? For them, your Roman citizenship or the fact that you're a Christian? And that's the the lesson for us today. Conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ when other voices might tell us not to. I can think of plenty of examples. Nobody's going to say, you know, as British citizens, you shouldn't be doing this, that, or the other, because the, the sort of um, the trend at the moment is to be slightly embarrassed about the fact that we're British, and so you wouldn't want to speak too loudly about it. But there are plenty of British values, and rightly or wrongly, it's probably a half-truth, somebody might say, you know, we subscribe to all of these British values and you can't really be a Christian and also live up to that. So you've got a bit of tension there. But our Christian identity is to be our primary one. One thing I was struck by when I went to Uganda is that if you speak to Christians out there and ask them to describe themselves, the first thing they'll say is, uh, I'm such and such and I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm also a school teacher. You know, we probably put school teacher first and then follower of Jesus quite far down the line, wouldn't we? Quite far down the list. But they had such a strong sense that first and foremost, they're a follower of Jesus, and then after that, there are lots of other things. So when there are all other voices telling us who we should be, what we should do, what values we should subscribe to, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the when. Now, how should we do that? I don't know about you, but when I read the words, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, I always think, yeah, I know what that means. That means be nice. I don't know if you've seen the Tommy Cooper sketch where he's going, nice, 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 nice. Has anyone seen that? No, that's just lost on all of you. Never mind. <laughs> but it's really cringy. He's going, nice, 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 nice. And the point he's making is, it's a bit sickly sweet. But... There is some truth in that, I have to say. You know, Christians are to be nice. If you're not nice, then, you know, maybe there's something wrong. But here in our reading, Paul breaks into this athletic or even military language. So it's much more forceful, much more active than just be nice. Listen to this. Uh, I'll read from verse 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, 
or just in one spirit. Striving together or fighting alongside each other. That's the same word for if you're in battle and you're all standing alongside each other and advancing towards the enemy. Same word. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So what does that mean in practice? I've kind of broken those three things down. We've got stand firm, striving together, and we've got without being frightened. So standing firm, that's the first thing Paul wants to see them doing. He wants to come back after he's clicked go and see that they're still living out the gospel life, and he wants to see that they stand firm. Now, in practice, that means for them, and it, meant, it means for us today, commit to the cause. Obviously, really, isn't it? I mean, you're not standing firm if you haven't made any commitment to the cause. Because the church is a bit like a train, and in this train, you've got some people who are sitting really comfortably in the carriages. They've made themselves at home, and they're in this for the long haul. And then you've got some people who are standing by the door, because maybe they've just got onto the train, or maybe they're just about to get off bit worried to be there, so making a hasty retreat. And some people are just sort of hanging onto the edge of the train like this, or maybe they're sitting on the roof. I won't get onto it, but they're sitting on the roof of the train. And that's quite an exciting picture, isn't it? You can imagine a train filled with people hanging on, sitting on top, sitting inside. It's a good way to be. That is how the church is. But the problem is, if you're kind of hanging onto the edge and you never actually make it into the carriage then you're probably not going to be on the train for very long. And if you're standing by the door, maybe sort of thinking, no, there are lots of nice, nice stations that this train's going past. This was one, beep, I'm off. Again, you might not be on the train for very long. But if you move into the train and you sit down in the carriage, that's when you'll be in the train for the long haul. And so the question I want you to think about this week, this afternoon, is this. In five years' time, will you still be on this train? Will you be sitting comfortably in one of the carriages, or will you have fallen off? To go in and sit down in the carriage actually takes you to do something. You have to go in and sit down. Um, I think by default, we're sort of hanging on and we're standing near the door. You've got to go in, you've got to commit to the cause. And I just want to take this opportunity to say a bit about the cause. Because I'm not asking you, and neither is Paul, nobody is asking you to commit to a cause which is church in the boring sense of the word. Sometimes I catch myself being boring, and um, I'm, somebody says to me, how's your job going, Sam? And I say, oh yeah, it's great. This week I uh, sent some emails and uh, did a risk assessment for one of our ministries and uh, got a new you know, piece of technology for the laptop at the back. And then I'm listening to myself thinking, what am I talking about? I didn't quit my previous job and go into ministry to buy HDMI cables. <sighs> and I despair at myself, really. But the thing is, when this building is taken away from us, and when all the screens and microphones have disappeared, when the laptops have gone, when nothing that we know at the moment is here anymore, when the rotors have gone, when the tea and coffees have gone, when nothing of that is left, I hope that we'll still be praying together. 
I hope that we'll still be singing together because we have a God worth singing to and a God worth singing about. I hope that we'll still be taking this meal together because we have a saviour who died for us so that we could be alive now, really alive now, and alive forever, beyond the grave as well. And I hope that we'll be waiting together for Christ to return. That is what the cause is about. So let's commit to that cause because that's worth committing to. I want to just say two things about how to commit to the cause. I said you've got to do something active to go into the train and sit down. And I think really, here's a catchy way to think about that. You've got to give some thought to your heart and your habits. You've got to give some thought to your heart because if you only have a heart for hanging on to the church and you're looking round because actually what's outside the train seems more appealing, then of course you're going to fall off. Pray to God and ask him to give you a heart for the gospel. But secondly, habits, and this maybe is one that we don't think about as much. The heart bit is obvious, but the habits is less obvious. But habits either hinder our hearts or they help our hearts. I saw an article on the BBC in August this year with the provocative title, How Mindfulness Could Make You Selfish. And basically, uh, it wasn't quite as black and white as that. But it said, if you're an independent person to begin with, then mindfulness strengthens that and you'll become more independent and effectively more selfish. Whereas if you're a community-based person to start off with and you love being around people and you're, you um, practice mindfulness, you'll become more community-orientated and um, you'll throw yourself into more selfless things. So basically, the point it's making is that the practice of mindfulness heightens your personality. Now, I'm not commenting on mindfulness now. I, you know, it's nothing to do with that. What I'm saying is that a practice changes your heart. It heightens your personality. And so we do things during the week that are habits. Some of those habits, you know, everyone might brush our teeth or whatever. Obviously, you know, that might not have any particular implications for your heart when it comes to God. But think about things like, uh, this is just one example I thought of uh, off the top of my head. We're so used to being able to order something online and it arrives in our door the next day or even that afternoon. That changes our heart about what we feel we're entitled to and how quickly we feel we're entitled to receive it. It's the same with, um, you know, supermarket shopping. I have nothing against the internet. I have nothing against supermarket shopping. But if we go in there and we're kind of overwhelmed with the choice and we just take a bit of everything, again, what is our heart going to learn from that habit? Our heart learns that we can have whatever we want whenever we want it. Those are just examples. And maybe those don't affect you. But this week, have a think about your habits. As... Lockdown has lifted. This is something I'm giving some really careful thought to because um, my working life has changed quite a lot now that we're back in person. And um, family life is different to what it was five years ago and all the rest of it. You know, a lot of things have changed for me over the last few years. And I just stopped the other night as I was preparing this sermon and thought, what about my habits? What's my daily routine like? What's my weekly routine like? 
And do those habits push me towards God or away from God? And I think there's a mix in there. There probably will be for all of us. So commit to the cause. Think about your heart and your habits. Secondly, uh, care about the cause. This is another way uh, how. How how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Care about the cause. Paul says, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together, fighting alongside each other. You don't fight alongside each other unless you care about the cause. Now, for that, we, we keep going, we keep praying. It's all the things I said before. Keep taking the Lord's Supper. We keep encouraging one another. We keep sharing the good news with others. We keep trusting God through the good times and the bad. And you know the wonderful thing about that list I've just reeled off is that you can do that no matter what age you are and no matter what life stage you're at or what, other, what sort of things are going on in your life. Your life could be filled with problems, but you can keep going, you can keep praying, you can keep encouraging one another. Your life might be, you might be on top of the world, and you can do all those things as well. So to strive together doesn't necessarily mean signing up to rotors and helping out at church and um, attending everything that the church puts on, that kind of thing. It's about a heart, it's about our hearts, it's about caring. And when we can see that we care, when I look at somebody in the congregation, when you look at me and we can see that the other person cares, that keeps us going. That's how we strive together. It doesn't matter necessarily that we will turn up to all of the same meetings, but if we care, we're moving forward together. I say that. Let me, do, <laughs> let me say something about volunteering. One thing that we, uh, we're trying to work on at the moment as a staff team is um, to think about and put down in writing, communicate effectively how each area of volunteering in the church contributes to everything that we are as a church. We don't want to be stuffy. We don't want it just to be rotors and, you know, we're doing risk assessments and all the rest of it. Church isn't boring, but... Obviously, with a group of people this size, you do need some organization to make things happen. And so what we're working on is just trying to uh, communicate effectively how does the, the one thing that you do a week, or however many it is, contribute to the, the bigger life of the church and the way in which the church reaches everybody in this community. Because when you can see that, then you can feel like, yes, you know, uh, doing the bit that I do is striving together to make a difference to the people of this area. And I think that will be encouraging. So watch this space for more information on that. But as I said before, when, when each of us cares, that is what keeps us going, striving together. One last thing. Have confidence in the cause. Stand firm, commit to the cause. Strive together care about the cause, and finally have confidence in the cause. Paul says, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So he's saying have confidence 
because you'll be saved by God. There is a power greater than the powers who oppose you. If you're a child and you're being bullied by somebody, you know, you're, <laughs> whether or not you'd be afraid depends on where you were. If you're walking down a dark alley late at night and there was a bully walking alongside you and pushing you and sort of verbally abusing you and then starting to hit you, you'd be afraid. But if you're in a well-lit street and you're close to your home and there are adults all around you who will help you out, and maybe there are adults at home that will as well, then you can have confidence because you know that they are going to stand up for you and they're going to squash the bully. Paul's saying, you will be saved by God. You're walking on God's well-lit street and he's right there beside you. So when somebody's walking along pushing you, then God sees that and God will intervene. It sounds a bit harsh when it says that... uh, it's a sign that they will be destroyed, you know, because when people are opposing us and we stand strong, they can see it's, it is a sign to them. They can see these people worship a God who they believe is, is real and is living and is there. And that is a sign to the bullies that they need to be careful. But yeah, sounds a bit harsh that they're going to be destroyed. But you've got to remember the opposition that Paul experienced in Philippi. I read before, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This is what happened next. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, just for living out their Christian faith, They were thrown into prison. So it was almost like state-sanctioned gang violence that they experienced. And so, yeah, you know, we, the sort of opposition we receive, we might not wish it on anyone to be destroyed because the sort of opposition we receive is someone saying, I don't believe that stuff. But when you live in Nigeria and you've had your four-year-old daughter stolen by a terrorist organization because you're a Christian, then suddenly it changes your perspective on things and you're very happy to know that God sees that and he's walking alongside you and he will bring about justice. We can also have confidence because our suffering unites us with Jesus. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, I'm suffering, you're suffering, we're suffering, we're Christians. And that's what we're called to by Christ. Peter says in one of his letters, uh, when, you, when you suffer, rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, why should it fill us with confidence that we participate in the sufferings of Christ. You know, we, when we suffer, he suffered, that puts us together. We're united in that. It's because look at how bad Jesus' suffering was and look at the good that came out of it. The outcome, obviously, as you know, is that he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He reigns at God's right hand. He will be returning to judge the living and the dead. And we, at that point, will experience those words Come into, uh, you know, come into heaven, you good and faithful servants. Come into the, the glory and the joy that has been prepared for you. So 
God is preparing us to be in the new creation, and that is what Jesus achieved through his suffering. But to get there, he had to suffer some of the worst things this world has to offer. So the Pharisees plotted his murder because of their envy and their pride and their jealousy, their hatred. Judas, his friend, betrayed him through the point uh, through greed. I know that um, you know it's quite a common experience today for people to feel betrayed by friends, marriage partners, other people, perhaps business partners. Judas betrayed his friend to the point of murdering him. Pilate stands as an example of injustice in high places, and the cross was physical agony and brutality, and psychologically immense shame. And if God can use all of that evil for such good, then he can use the suffering that we go through for good too. And so when we participate in the sufferings of Christ, what that means is we see what Christ went through and the glory that came out of that. And it helps us to interpret our own sufferings. It might still be painful. It might still be a long road. But God can bring good out of it. And in the end, we will be rejoicing at what God has done. So let me wrap it up. To, to share in the gospel is an honour. As I said at the beginning, it's not like joining the table tennis ta- uh, club. It's much more than that. We are signing up to a lifestyle, an identity, a set of values, but much more than that. We're signing up to be saved and to experience eternal life and joy in God's presence. It's an honour to be part of that. And so we should conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ at all times, in every way, and with complete confidence and joy. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I imagine as the Philippian church first heard this letter read to them, after it had been sent by Paul, they were sitting on the edge of their seats because they knew what it was like to believe in Jesus in the early days of the church, and they knew what it was like to suffer for Jesus. Today, Lord, we live in a slightly different situation, thousands of years on, but we pray that the message of this reading that we've had this morning would settle in our hearts, that we would think carefully about how we live our lives, and that we would move into the train, that we would fully commit to you and find joy and confidence in doing so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.